We're continuing in uh, a series called Religion Kills, a series through Galatians. Um, we are almost through it this week and next week, uh, Lord willing, and, and we will be finished with going through the, the book of Galatians. The, the major theme that we've been looking at in this book is, is basically this idea that um, the, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ is, at its heart, that he has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. That there is nothing that we can do on our own to make ourselves right in the judgment of God. Only what Christ has done on our behalf and all of our striving and energy and religious systems, if we're using that to get right with God, is ultimately a death sentence. That the only religion that doesn't kill is a religion that starts with understanding that Christ has already done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And our works and our energy are poured out from that, from a joyful thanksgiving for what he has already done, not from a guilty conscience trying to be right with God. He has already satisfied those demands. And as we, as we work through the book of Galatians, as, as Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book often does, he moves from these big theological themes to, okay, guys, now here's practically speaking how you live this out. And so that's where we're at in this book. And we're going to turn there right now. If you would, with me, let's stand and we'll read Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. It'll be on your screen. If anyone needs a Bible, it's on the back table or put your hand up and someone will bring you one for sure. Um, otherwise, turn, flip, swipe, or whatever you have to do to, to get there. Chapter 6, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your good news. We are so grateful for this gospel that saves us, that rescues us from our sins, that your Son, Jesus Christ, paid every penalty that we could possibly ever need to pay on the cross. So that by faith in him, we can have forgiveness. We can have a righteousness that is not our own. And God, I pray that if we don't know that, that you would, you would move us to know that. And to the extent that we do know it, that you would sink it in deep in our hearts so that we would overflow with the goodness that you deserve from us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. So like I said, we're, we're moving into kind of the, the, the practical nitty-gritty part of this book. And we, we've talked about this for a, a few weeks. And here in, in chapter 6, we could entitle this, this message, Do Good. Uh, the word good and, and various forms keeps coming up over and over again in this passage. And so there is a clear idea here that even though we're saved by grace, meaning we're saved by the free gift of God and Jesus Christ, and that we have no longer any debt that we owe to God. 
There's no sin debt that separates us from God if we're in Christ. That does not excuse us from the responsibility to serve. In fact, because we love God so much, we want to be like God. We want to be like Jesus Christ who saved us. And so we emulate him and we, we take the attitude of a servant. We talked about that. We, we talked about how because we have the Holy Spirit in our lives and we're controlled by the Spirit, we start to produce a, a fruit in our life, a crop in our life that's more and more reflective of God's own character. And in this passage, he gets to some very specific things. Um, but he starts off in verse 6, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And um, this is always awkward to talk about, and so I'm just going to, to cite Martin Luther here. Uh, these passages are all meant to benefit us ministers. I must say, I do not find much pleasure in explaining these verses. I am made to appear as if I am speaking for my own benefit. Um, that is how... Uh, we pastors often feel when we come up with a verse like this. Um, but I do want to put it, put it in some context here. Uh, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And this is a really interesting passage, because going back to the beginning of this series, we talked about how this is probably Paul's very first letter that we have. This is a very early letter for dating from about 48, 49, 50. Um, so very early in Paul's Christian ministry, relatively speaking, not that long after uh, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ um, for our sake. And, and so from a very early point, we can see that there was an obligation that existed between what's called here the teachers and those being taught. And I want to talk about what, what that relationship is with, while trying to avoid um, this awkwardness of me appearing to be speaking for my own behalf. Um, the, the, the word here, it's a different word from teaching than what we normally see in Scripture, and this is very much a uh, verbal communication, uh, instructor-instructee type communication, and that fits with what we know about the word. The word, or the message, is the gospel. It's the whole message about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And, and then more broadly, all that scripture tells us about God. And that was a message that for Paul, that needed to be proclaimed. It needed to be verbally uh, uh, spoken by his ministers. Where Paul says in, in Romans that how will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear unless one is... Is sent. And so there's a, there's a requirement that, that we hear the gospel. We, we need to hear the message about God. Um, and, and predominantly, obviously, we do that through what Paul calls the foolishness of preaching. Because this message is so important, and because this message needs to be communicated to the entire world in a short amount of time, in God's providence, he's chosen that some people should spend their careers, so to speak, for lack of a better word, spend all their time doing, preaching the word. And where the upshots of that is, if that if somebody is spending their time preaching the word, it makes it difficult for them to earn a living. And so what Paul is saying is that we do have an obligation to support people who are in the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
to enable them to do that. Because if they've been called to do that, then whatever time that they're not able to, whatever time that they use to, to work for themselves for their own benefit, it's time that is taken away from the preaching of the gospel. Um, so, to use an example that's not me, because that makes it a lot easier. We have had a, a worship leader here a couple times visiting us and, and helping us out, um, who is going on staff with, with Campus Crusade for Christ, or now as it's called, Crew. Um, and his job is going to be to preach the gospel. He actually is going to have a unique role in that he works with President uh, of Crew, Stephen Douglas, uh, to maximize his gospel preaching ministry. And, and so he is going around and he is asking people to support his ministry. I believe that's a, a godly, uh, an honorable uh, reason to support somebody. One of my best friends is in, we'll say, Southeast Asia, uh, to not get him in trouble. He's in Southeast Asia in an area where uh, you're not really allowed to preach the gospel, uh, and you're not really allowed to try to attract new Christians, uh, and you're certainly not allowed to start new churches, um, at least none ones that don't have state approval. But he is there doing just that, planting churches, starting churches, uh, building Christians, among different people groups in that nation that will hopefully take over the leadership of these churches that aren't under the state control, and so they're able to freely proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a good work. And in order for him to do that, he could get a job, and he could do that, and that's fine. But we understand that if he's working 30, 40, 50 hours a week, um, that is time that he can't spend preaching the gospel. And so... My family supports him in that, and we, we fund him in that so that he doesn't have to take another job in order to preach the gospel. Paul himself was not above working. In fact, Paul, as a more of a missionary than a pastor, never wanted to appear like he was taking advantage of the people he was preaching the gospel to. And so he didn't want non-believers to have to pay him in order for him to do ministry among them. And so what he would do is he would work a side business. Uh, he was a leather worker. Uh, sometimes we say a tent maker, uh, but it probably did all kinds of leather and canvas type work, um, producing tarps, tents, those sorts of things. And he made a decent living on that. And when that wasn't enough or when he felt like he needed to spend more time doing the ministry, sometimes other churches in other cities that were already Christians that believed the message, and believed in the ministry that he was called to would send support his way. And so even from a very early age, we see that um, this was an important concept. But I want to I talk about what it, it says and what it doesn't say, which, which is maybe just as important. This idea, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. I want to focus in on share all good things. This word share is... is our fellowship word. We usually it appears as a noun, but here it appears as a verb. And, and usually this idea of fellowship, we like to think fellowship is when I have a cup of coffee with my Christian friend. And then we had fellowship, right? Biblically, that's not really fellowship. Fellowship is a commercial term. It had a secular meaning before it had a Christian meaning. It meant to be in partnership with someone. So if you went into business with someone... 
and you put down half the money for the business, and, and he put down half the money for the business, then you had a partnership, you had fellowship, you had a joint stake in the outcome of that business. And so when, Christian, when Paul talks to Christians about the idea of fellowship, there is a very much a, we have a stake in the game idea here. In other words, we have partnered together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul talks about partnership in the gospel, he is literally talking about the fact that people are sacrificing of their own selves to further the gospel in whatever way that might be necessary. Just as if you had a business that you were in partnership with a a friend, you would do, probably, whatever it took to see the business succeed. Because you don't want to lose. You don't want to fail. You don't want to go bankrupt. You might work extra hours. You might put in extra money. You... uh, You might get outside consultants. You might do any number of things in order to find the business would succeed because you're invested in it. You're passionate about it. And you have a stake in it. And that's how Paul wants us to think about the gospel of Jesus. Maybe I'm not the guy over in some closed-off nation preaching the gospel. But I have a stake in that because we're part of the same body of Jesus Christ. Maybe... I'm not the one going on staff at at such and such college and and preaching the gospel in a very dark place. And maybe maybe I'm not called to be the pastor or the missionary, but we all have a stake in the gospel. Because at the end of this age, what will stand is those who have been redeemed by and rescued by the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel for us should be our highest value on this plane of existence. And so Paul is taking that mentality and he's saying, even in the church, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And all good things is very general here. So so Paul doesn't see necessarily a transactional economy. You know, it's not necessarily, um, you know, especially in that early church, it wasn't necessarily a paycheck. Um, it probably was a few years later. I don't, I don't know how it all worked. But, it, but probably, they didn't operate the way we operate today. Obviously, it's a different culture, different business economy. But the idea was certainly that if there was some good that was acquired or received or benefited, all Christians would share in the blessings of the one Christian. And that certainly included Um, the teachers. And it might have been particularly important in Galatia because they've got these false teachers coming in. And so it might have been a point for Paul to remind them of this because, excuse me, perhaps with the false teachers coming in, there may have been a temptation to to cut off the support from their true teachers who were teaching them the, the, the true gospel and teaching them rightly in the word. And so there, there is a place for that. There is a place for that. Um, but it's also, we don't take that too far. I'm going to go to another reformer because I think this is valuable. John Calvin said, ministers ought to be satisfied with moderate fare and the danger which attends pomp and luxury ought to be prevented. Okay, so don't tell that to my wife. Uh, no, no. Um, 
But I think John Calvin has a, has a point. If we're, if we're sharing in things together as a church, and that naturally extends to uh, the people who are, are put in leadership to teach or preach or things like that, it, it is not an excuse because it is used as an excuse in some churches, and we won't name names, but I'm sure you can imagine some, where the pastor probably lives a life of luxury well beyond the means of the vast majority of the people in the congregation. And that's not the idea at all. That's not the idea at all. And I think Paul is a great example in that Paul worked to make sure that his needs were met. When they, when they were met by outside sources, he didn't feel the need to work. But he wasn't working to get wealthy. He wasn't working to, to have a, some sort of phenomenal standard of living. And so I think this passage also gives us a good check if we are to share all good things with the one who teaches, which is just an extension of the broader principle that we should share the good things amongst ourselves, I would suggest that within the church, it is probably a blight against us if one of us or several of us live in a a, a state of great luxury and great ease as we watch others suffer and struggle. I'm not, talking, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm talking about in the church. It's probably a blight on us if our fellow brothers and sisters might be struggling and hurting and living a pained existence while some of us live an extravagant existence. I'm not preaching socialism. I'm not preaching all things being equal, and I'm not preaching a political philosophy. I'm simply saying that if we believe what Paul says, that we share all good things with one another, that that's going to have ramifications for what our community looks like. So, take that with a grain of salt um, if you need to, but I think there is some truth there. This is also just an, an extension as well of, of this whole section here of how we love our neighbor as ourselves. But let's move on. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. At first, this might sound a little bit odd. This, what does that have to do with verse 6, Paul? What does it have to do with making sure we take care of the teacher's in the church. Um, and, and what Paul, I think, is saying is he's, again, building, first of all, um, this basic principle that we share the good things with the one who teaches, but now he's, he's kind of backing up and he's looking at the bigger picture. How do we conduct our lives? Big picture, guys. Don't think that God's going to be mocked. How we would we mock God? He says, well, whatever you sow, you'll also reap. I don't understand, Paul. How, how is that mocking God? And I think what Paul is saying is, look, the way, if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves spiritual, that is, we call ourselves people who are led by and controlled by the Spirit, and then we act in a way that is defiantly contrary to that, 
It's sort of thumbing our nose at God. Does that make sense? So put this back in the, the context of, of the end of chapter 5 here. When Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, what are they? The works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And think about how many of those things in the list really are problems between believers. Not every single one of them, but a lot of them, the ones we don't like to focus on, are ones that talk about our relationship with each other. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is really a continuation of this broader point. If we claim to be Christians, if we claim to be spiritual, we claim to be spirit-led, then the way we conduct ourselves is going to say a lot about whether that's true or not. And God will not be mocked. In other words, he will have his say on this. He will not be stand to be put to ridicule. And so Paul says, for the one who sows, verse 8, to his own flesh, will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so we have this, we go back to these two ways to live here that we've seen throughout the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, that we have two different paths that we can follow. We can follow the works of the flesh, or we can follow after the fruit and the, the crop and the harvest of the Holy Spirit. Those are our two paths. If we're Christians, if you're not a Christian, you have one path. If you're a Christian, you have freedom, you have two paths that you can choose. And we're always uh, have, have this option before us, whether I want to choose to indulge my sinful nature, the flesh, or do I want to choose to indulge the Holy Spirit who's living inside of me. And they have two different outcomes. If we live a life... That we sow to his own flesh. And, and what that is, so we're not farmers. We're not, we're not, we don't live in an agricultural society. I know that Cleveland's trying to do cool things with urban farming and stuff like that, but you have to really hunt them down, right? So we see cement and concrete. But, but we understand the basic principle. If you sow a corn kernel, you get a corn plant. If you sow a, a wheat seed, you get a wheat plant. You get what you sow. Right? Corn doesn't turn out to be wheat. Apples don't turn out to be pears. It doesn't work that way. And so exactly what we put in is what type of thing we're going to get out. Paul's not here talking as much about quantity as type of thing. And we can't expect that if we uh, live a life where we are basically feeding the soil of our sinful nature, feeding our lusts, feeding our desires feeding our cravings for the things of this world that are fading and temporary and, 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 and dissipating and falling away, if we live our life after those things, what are we going to reap in our lives? We're going to reap a crop of things that are going to be destroyed. And so Paul says that, um, that we will reap uh, from the flesh corruption. 
Right? Because these things are, are corrupting to our very souls, and they're also the things that decay and will be destroyed when Jesus returns. And Jesus judges the world, recreates the heavens and the earth, and sets things right. Those are the things that will no longer last. But on the other hand, if we sow to the Spirit, we will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, if we conduct our lives in a way that we are feeding the soil of the Spirit's nature in us, if we are feeding, if we're, if we're taking these seeds of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithful, and we, we sow those deep down in our soul, guess what we're going to reap more of? We're going to reap more of that same harvest. We're going to reap more of that same fruit of the Spirit. And these are the types of things that, that well up to eternal life. He's not preaching a salvation by works here. But again, God is not deceived. And our works are evidence of what Christ has already done in our lives. And so if, if our lives are consumed by a, uh, a, a desires of the flesh, then it's probably an indication that we don't know the God of grace. If our lives are consumed by a sowing to the Spirit, well then it's proof positive that we've come to know the God of grace. But I, I want to step back on this, on this idea of sowing to the flesh. And I don't want you to think, I don't want you to only think that sowing to the flesh is only about certain sins. Or at least certain sins that we readily come up with in our minds and, and dwell on. Because it is a deeper concept than that. Remember, the, these, the works of the flesh are, are the produce, um, that, that's the harvest that sin produces in our lives. But I also think, let's go back to what the heart of this letter is. Sowing to the flesh, in this case, also includes believing the lie that these Galatians were being taught that their salvation was dependent upon their own efforts. Literally, in a very literal sense, not in the spiritual sense of flesh, but in the very literal sense of flesh, in terms of their bodies, they were being told that the works that they did in this body, on this plane, in this earth, were the, were, were the basis on which God would accept them or reject them on the day of judgment. And when we allow ourselves to, to buy into those lies, we're sowing into the flesh. We really are. Because we, we put our, our hearts and our minds back in this world. And, and as we've talked about so much, it's such an easy lie to believe. Because grace is such a hard concept to get. It's so difficult to, to, to swallow this idea that I'm okay. And, and he's okay. And she's okay. Not on the basis, but they, they look funny. They smell funny. They do things I don't like, God. But do they believe in my grace? My son's blood has covered them. They are whole, God says, and they are mine. And you are mine. And, and, and we, 
We struggle to understand that because so much of our culture and so much of our society tells us that we're nothing unless we do. We're nothing but our resume. We're nothing but what we accomplish. And we're told to pull up our bootstraps. And, and I have this because I did this, and they don't have this because they didn't do this. And this is what our society tells us. But I'm telling you that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's a lie. That the only thing that we have and the only thing that we can claim is what Christ already has done for us. And that may be the biggest sowing to the, the flesh that these Galatians are struggling with is this, this desire to literally make their flesh and blood existence on this plane acceptable to God. And if you're trying to fight that battle, you will fail. Because you've misunderstood what the good news of Jesus Christ is about. Then Paul says in in, uh, verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's a promise here. And I think this is a verse that, you know, even this week as I was preparing, I I think I just kind of overlooked. I skipped through it. It's just, okay, that makes sense. I don't have to really wrestle with what it means. And so you kind of skip over a little bit, and when I study, I sometimes focus on other things that are harder to understand. But we don't want to miss this verse, because there's a promise here. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Paul says there's a harvest that comes from our Christian life. There's a harvest that comes from our Christian faith. And we will receive it. He's not talking about prosperity here. He's not talking about health and wealth. Because again, the fruit of the Spirit, the kind of things that we sow are things like 522, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. This is, this is the kind of fruit that God wants in our lives. Not mega millions, not perfect health, you know, not no broken bones, not no scratches, no, not, not no emotional scars, not no psychological damage. We know that these things are part of this world, part of the curse, and part of the things that we will endure until he, Christ comes and, and, and fixes it, and Christ comes and redeems it. We know those things aren't what are front and center here. But Paul says, if we don't grow weary of doing good, Timothy George says that one of the greatest frustrations in Christian ministry and a principal cause for weariness in well-doing is the inability to calculate the spiritual outcome of faithful labors in the works of the Lord. As we live the Christian life, you say, I'm not a minister, you're a minister. If you, if you are a Christian, you have been called to minister, which simply means to serve other people. You've been called to be a light. You've been called to be a, a Christ bearer, a gospel bearer. You might not be called to be a full-time evangelist, but 
You're called to bear witness to the hope that we have. And maybe you've often felt this frustration that you don't see the fruit in your life. Maybe you don't see, you, you feel like you've told all your neighbors about Jesus and, and you haven't seen any of them come to faith in Jesus. Maybe you've, um, <clears throat> maybe you have a, a son or a daughter that uh, you, you've loved on and, 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 and walked side by side with, but they've, but they've run away from the truth of the gospel and, and you feel like maybe it was in, in vain. Maybe you've lost friends along the way. Sometimes it is hard to live the Christian life because sometimes we don't see the results of what we're doing. And just as an aside, I think sometimes we get so lost in this that um, we're such a result-oriented culture that we, we judge our own ministry, we judge our own faithfulness based on the bounty of results we see. And so, you know, I don't want to go too far down that, that road. Um, what counts is our faithfulness. What counts is our, are, are we faithfully planting a crop? Are we faithfully sowing to the Spirit in our daily lives? Because at the, at the right time, or in the ESV it says, in the due season, a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere for the arrival of Christ on earth, his death on the cross, a phrase that Paul uses also for the coming of Jesus Christ again to set the world right, at a time that's perfect in God's Judgment, as, as solid as God's character, as, as absolutely sure as we can be of God's goodness, is as absolutely sure we can be that there is a time coming that whatever we have sown by the Spirit, for the Spirit, will produce a harvest. It's a promise. It's not a harvest of prosperity. It's not a harvest of perfect health. But it's a, it's a harvest of spirit-produced fruit that magnifies and explodes to the glory of God. And God promises it will happen. And so don't grow weary when you don't see all of the fruit of the Spirit in your life right now. When you don't see the fruit of the Christian life coming out in thousands of people being saved all around you or, or, or whatever your metric is. Don't grow tired of doing good. How many times have you done a good deed and maybe you saw the person that you try to do the good deed for, take advantage of it, and, and you grew discouraged? Don't grow discouraged. Did you do what God called you to do in that moment? Were you doing something for the goodness of Jesus Christ in that moment? then don't grow weary, don't grow discouraged, because God has promised us that we will reap if we don't give up. And so whenever you're, you're frustrated in your Christian ministry, whenever you're frustrated in living out your life and, and you feel like you're getting nowhere, this, this is probably a good one that we should all commit to memory and remind ourselves of the promise that God is working that goodness for his greatness 
in its perfect time. He will make it sure. So then Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so here Paul has this sort of two-pronged approach to doing good. We have a a goodness that we owe everybody and, and a special goodness that we owe to the household of faith. So let's, let's talk about that. First of all, let us do good to everyone. It's a reminder that we need because sometimes it's really easy to not want to do good to people that we don't like, to people who've hurt us, to people who have struck us, uh, to people who just not like us, to people who make us uncomfortable, to people who make us feel awkward. There are people that we don't enjoy doing good to. And yet, Paul says, do good to everyone. And so we have to remember that if all of us are created in God's image, and all of us are stamped with with something that reflects his character and his nature, then all of us have an intrinsic value. We remember who we are, we remember where we came from, that we're special creations of the eternal God. It makes it a little bit easier to remember that this is a person that is worthy of me doing good to. They don't deserve good, none of us deserve good, but as they're created in God's image, they're worthy of my goodness being done to them. And it's a hard one sometimes, but we have to remember it. But then, some of us get this part better than others, and sometimes this is actually the harder one for us as Christians, and especially to those who are the household of faith. So here he's talking about those who have faith in Jesus Christ, who are called to be Christians. Where you got to love this picture, this idea of a household. We are a family. We are God's adopted sons and daughters, and so we've been called into God's families. And so the relationship that we have as Christians is tighter than any blood or biological relationship we might have. Really hard one to swallow. But the fact of the matter is, is that the, the people sitting around you who know Jesus and love Jesus the way that you know Jesus and love Jesus, you will spend eternity with, no matter what they look like, sound like, or smell like. And the people who come from the exact same socioeconomic background as you, and have the same political views as you, and talk exactly the same way you do, but don't love Jesus, will not spend eternity with you. And so who are we called to be closer to? Who are we called to sacrifice for more? And I think there's a a similar idea, just I think in, in my own life, I have a first responsibility to my biological family before I have a responsibility for my neighborhood, Right? Uh, I want to do good for my neighborhood. I want to take care of my neighborhood. I want to make sure the the trash is picked up in the neighborhood. Uh, I want to look out for my neighbors. But if push comes to shove, i got to look out for my own sons and my wife before I can look out for my neighbors, right? We can can understand that principle. Now, spiritualize it. We, We have a first obligation to those people who are in our spiritual family that's even more important than our biological family. And and then... And then to those who are not part of our spiritual family. 
we, we used to get this. We used to get this a lot better. Uh, the early church, in fact, in, in not too many years after the apostles, were so known for their do-gooding that the Romans lamented that they were not only taking care of all of their own poor, the Christians, but they were taking care of the poor of the entire Roman Empire and putting the Roman government to shame. Because these Christians were doing a better job than civil society was doing. Oh, that they would say that about us in America. I didn't turn my notifications off. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> um, he just he texted me. Um, <laughs> there's 51 of you in here. Uh, 51 of you of the household of faith that I have special obligation to. Um, but it's kind of a cool concept. And this is part, this goes back to, you know, our idea. We're going to live in community. All right, so what Christian community looks like is that we, we are aware of each other's needs, we care about each other, and we know how we need to do good to each other. We know what it looks like to have all things in common as the early believers had in Acts, which did not mean that they put everything in a pot and split it up evenly. But it might have meant, oh, you need to mow your lawn? Oh, I got a lawnmower. Take my lawnmower and go mow your lawn. Come here back when you're done. You know, it's free to use whenever you use it. And it's a really simple, stupid example, but you get the idea. You know, it's, it's an attitude that what I have isn't really mine. But it's God's. It's on temporary loan to me for use for His glory while I'm here on this earth. And if I have that attitude about my stuff and about my bank account, it's going to change how I use my stuff and my bank account, isn't it? Because it's not my money. It's not my lawnmower. It's not my snowblower. It's not even my cell phone. Just the one Brian texts me on in the middle of service. How am I using these things for the glory of God? How am I using these things to do good to other people, and especially to my fellow believers? So when I, when I see a need, when I see an opportunity to do good, as Paul says, I feel the ability to meet the need. Because I look at myself and I say, hey, I've got something that will meet that need, and it's not really mine to begin with. And it's a lot easier to let go of things that we're holding on to like this than to let go of things that we're holding on to like this, right? This is the attitude that we recognize these are things from God that we are accepting as gifts in reverence and worship. And this is the attitude of my selfish idolatry that wants to cling to the things of this world. And so we have an obligation. This is, you know... This is one of those passages that it's really easy to understand. There's nothing really complicated in this passage, and yet it's probably one of the hardest ones to really get down in our souls. Because we are so tied to the things of this world. So what would it look like? What would it look like if, if this week we started doing good to everyone as we have opportunity, and especially to those who are of the household of faith? Well, let me challenge you kind of on the heels of last week when I, when I challenged you guys that if, if you don't have 
a relationship, a strong relationship with other believers. Maybe think about joining a growth group. Maybe you're already in a growth group. Take the next step and, and find a, 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 an individual or, or two individuals who you say, you know what, I'm really going to go deeper with you in life. So let me re-challenge you on that in case you weren't here for that. That that's a first step. That's a good first step. Because the reality is, is you won't have much of an opportunity to do good unless you are aware of the opportunities to do good. So I want you to just think for a second, the first three or four people that come to your mind. doesn't matter who they are. First three or four people you know, they're close in your life, that come to your mind. How do they need good done to them? Do you know? If you don't know, then that's kind of the first step, isn't it? It means our community with those people needs to be tighter so that we're even aware of what they need and how we can love them. And so this is a command that's nearly impossible unless we're doing community well. So if you don't know how they're they're in need, if you don't know how they need good done to them, make that your objective this week, to find out how you can love them well. And if you know those things, then prayerfully think through how can you meet those needs? What has God blessed you with that you can use to bless those people with? Let's pray. Father God, you have been so good to us. First and foremost, in the grace that you demonstrated to us at the cross of Jesus Christ, and his blood poured out for our sins, the forgiveness that you offer through faith in his actions and his person. And on that basis alone, we stand so unworthy, God. And yet beyond that, God, if we were naked and poor and without a cent to our name, but we had that, we would have everything. But yet you have given us so much more than that. May we be people who understand that all of these things are from you. And all of these things are for you. And may we reflect the kind of community that glorifies you in sharing the good things you have for us with each other. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.